We're continuing in our sermon series that's looking at uh, our church vision, and uh, we'll be following it up in our house groups, our small groups this week. If you're not part of a small group but would like to be, then uh, uh, do see me today. Small groups meet on a Monday and a Tuesday in the day, and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the evening. So do speak to me if you want to join one of those and be part of our ongoing uh, reflection and dialogue around all of these things. And so as we uh, journey together up the steps, our vision of mission and maturity, we're going today to get right to the heart of the matter and think about the greatest step. The greatest step any human being can possibly take in their lives. The thing that above all else it is most about. But why? Why is becoming a Christian the greatest step anybody can make. For many people, the greatest step in their lives is getting married. The day we said, I do, ranks right up there uh, as one of life's greatest decisions. For many who are not yet married uh, or aren't married, there is a desire amongst many of those to be married or at least to have a long, fulfilling, sustained human relationship. We'll build a world of our own that no one else can share. All our sorrows will leave far behind us there. And I know you will find there'll be peace of mind when we live in a world of our own. Who sung those words? Sad lot. (laughs) I was going to go on to say that if you uh, knew the answer to that uh, and knew when it was, Sue Healy, when was it? Well, yeah, oh... (laughs) Around the early 70s, and it says something in my notes, golly, some of you must be really quite old. Uh, Yet, words that are very, very relevant to what's happening in our culture today. We have this deep feeling that one exclusive relationship with an individual will bring to our lives the happiness and fulfilment, the meaning and security that all of us Crave. If only I can find Mr. Right. If only I can find Miss Right. If only we can build that exclusive relationship, get the two big C's of commitment and chemistry sorted out, then the happiness for which our hearts long for will be found. It's a lonely world. But we'll find there in that one exclusive relationship that there'll be peace of mind when we live in a world of our own. This is what makes the Samaritan woman such a contemporary figure. Uh, 2,000 years have gone by since her encounter with Jesus, and yet she is utterly contemporary. Here was a woman who had kept trying to build a world of her own around an exclusive relationship. Yet every time that world, that relationship, had fallen apart. So we read in verse 18, Jesus says, The fact is that you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. The poor woman had dreamed for great things, and yet her dreams had been shattered. Not once, twice, three, four Five times her dream had been shattered. And now she's trying once more outside marriage, hoping to leave her sorrows and troubles behind her, but discovering in practice that they are pursuing her all of the time and that you don't actually find peace in that privatised world of your own. 
So many people who have a desperate quest for their own personal meaning and fulfillment find themselves uh, uh, from relationship into relationship. They look for it, but they do not find it. One of the privileges as well as the challenges of my job is that people invite me to share on the inside of their lives, sometimes on the inside of their marriages, especially in times of need and struggle. And here is the issue that from the outside it's easy to observe looking in. People can bring, and we all do it to a certain extent, people bring to their marriages and other relationships expectations that that relationship was never, ever meant to bear. It's not just marriage, it may be a child, a parent, or even a boss. Expectations on that person to fulfill me, to give my life meaning. But expectations nonetheless that are totally unrealistic. Expectations that no human being should really be asked to bear for another. Will Carling may have been a hero on the rugby field, but his life exposes so much of the malady of our own culture. He was everything that you would imagine. He was successful, he was famous, he had a beautiful and successful wife. But it went horribly wrong. He splits from Julia Carling after being linked emotionally with Princess Diana. And then within months of the split and the Diana thing not really working out, he has a new girlfriend called Ali. And soon after, they have a child called Henry. When Henry is only 11 months old, Will walks out on both Ali and Henry because he becomes involved with Lisa Cook, the estranged wife of his friend, the ex-England player David Cook. The nation did at that moment have enough moral gravitas to give him rather a hard time. And he was lambasted in the press, those parts of the press that could care. So to defend himself, Carling writes an article that he publishes in, or he has published in the Daily Mail, to defend himself, to display it, to explain why he walked out on Ali and his 11-month-old son. And this is what he says. I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy. And therefore I wasn't going to make Al happy. And therefore I wasn't going to make a happy environment for Henry. If Lisa wasn't around, that's his new girl, it still wouldn't have mattered. I still wouldn't have stayed. It's not about Lisa, it's about me and Al. I want someone I can visit the Grand Canyon with, tell them everything. Someone I can be at peace with all the time. But he hadn't found that peace. And he was on his fourth highly successful, glamorous woman. It's an illusion. It's no more real than James Bond. You cannot find peace in yourself through peace in your other relationships. You cannot find peace with somebody else unless you have already found peace from within. Will Carling is a victim of our culture. That's not in any way to excuse him, but nonetheless, all the same, he's a victim of a culture that places such huge expectation on human relationships. You will give my life meaning and purpose. But you can't. But you can't. Oliver James, a clinical psychologist, writes in his book, Britain on the Couch, he writes about why we are, are unhappier now than the 1950s. 
Uh, Even though, he says, we're so much richer and wealthier in almost every area of our lives, why are we so much more unhappy? He says this, Today we demand vastly more from our relationships compared to the 1950s, like addicts searching for the fix of intensity and intimacy. Ironically, it is the broken bonds of love that are the greatest single cause of despair. So, Will Carling's experience, Oliver James's analysis, are spot on for this woman 2,000 years ago. Five times she would have said, this is the one. Five times she would have said, this relationship will be different. Imagine her going home to her mother the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time. Mum, he's not like the others. This one will last. I know this one will deliver. And each time she told herself all the louder, willing it, longing it, believing it, hoping it would be true. Actually, most people stop long before five, not because they found what they're looking for necessarily in terms of their deep inner needs, but simply out of a a, a resigned acceptance about the futility, the inevitable futility of what it means to be human. And in that paralysis of disappointment, we can resonate with the eight-year-old boy who commented on Christian marriage. In Christianity, you have only one wife. They call it monotony. (laughs) You will not find peace in your relationships until you find peace in yourself. After just a few years of marriage... With constant arguments, a young man and his wife decided the only way to save their marriage was to go for some counselling. They'd been at each other's throats almost since day one, and so off they went as a last-ditched attempt to save their relationship. When they arrived at the counsellor's office, the counsellor was keen to get started and opened up the floor for discussion, at which the wife went hammer and tongs. Hardly pausing for breath. Nothing to surprise anybody there. And and she kept going five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes. The husband hasn't said a word. She would have gone for several hours. Had the counsellor not got up, walked round the desk, gone up to the wife, still in full flow, and kissed her lovingly, longingly, lingeringly on the lips. Suddenly it was very, very quiet. The wife sat and stared. Counselor looked at the husband who was wide-eyed in disbelief. And eventually the counselor said to the husband, that's what your wife needs twice a week. It was a pause. He said, well, if you think it'll do any good, I can bring her on a Tuesday and a Thursday. <laughs> you will not find peace in your relationships until you found peace in yourself. In a world where relationships struggle to work, we must look elsewhere for ultimate meaning and fulfillment. And Jesus makes it clear in this meeting with the Samaritan woman that he is offering something much deeper, something much more sustaining than what she had found in any human relationship. And if you don't get from Christ what you need, you will look for it from others. And the strain that that will put on your relationships can so easily be unbearable. Look at some of the detail with me. Maybe you want your uh, Bibles open, the ones in front of you at John chapter 4. Jesus wants her to understand that he has got for her what she has been unable to find else. 
where. And so in this exchange, there is a play initially on the word water, because they're meeting round a well. Jesus says to the woman, uh, will you give me a drink at verse 7 of chapter 4? What page is this on, folks, in the few Bibles? 66? 1066. William the Conqueror, I knew that. 67. 1067. They're at the well. Will you give me a drink? Jesus says to her. Samaritan woman would have been enormously surprised at the request for reasons that I'll explain in just a moment. But she doesn't know the half of it yet. Hear the irony in that opening phrase. Here is the man who has the living water that quenches humanity's deepest thirst, asking the woman who only knows about stagnant, tepid water from a Palestinian well, who only knows about that water. Hey, you give me a drink. What irony that will be played out. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. First hint, Jesus is moving on to something much more than the water in this well. And whilst Jesus is talking about living water, she presumably, by the conversation that continues, thinks that he's talking about running water. Jesus, where's your tap? You're quite right. It would be easier to get water from a tap rather than dragging it up from this well. Show me where I can find it. Then Jesus kind of builds the tension a bit more, making an even greater claim for his water compared to the stagnant well. Everyone who drinks this water, I give, it will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Everyone who drinks this water, he says to the woman in the well, well, you'll be thirsty again. But my water, whoever drinks my water, the water I give to him, it will be come in him a well of springing, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And at this the woman begins to think, well, there's something very special about this water. It doesn't look like she's fully understood the implications by a long way, but she thinks to herself, well, I need some of this water then. I better have it. So where can I find it? Sir, give me this water then so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And it's then that Jesus helps her make the connection. This water will really will stop you being thirsty again, Jesus is saying. It will quench you forever, but not the thirst for a drink, the deeper thirst. It will quench the relational thirst so evident in the five husbands you have had. The inner thirst that all your husbands could not quench or satisfy will be satisfied in the water that I give. Which is why at this point Jesus says, if you want to know more, if you want to understand more, you better go and get your husband. Because it's all about him really. It's all about what's happening at home. It's all about what you have looked for in these men but have not been able to find. Go get your husband. And that's exactly what she went on to do. But let's zoom right in just for a moment on that uh, verse we had a second ago. Everyone who drinks this water, verse 13, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give, says Jesus, will never thirst Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The water that Jesus gives is utterly able to quench our thirst. What no relationship can satisfy, Jesus is able to satisfy. What material things cannot satisfy, Jesus 
is able to. And where no religion is able to satisfy, remember John chapter 4 comes after John chapter 3 when Jesus has been meeting with the religious uh, 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 high-class man Nicodemus. What religion cannot do, Jesus is able to do. He is utterly able to quench our deepest thirst, to meet our greatest longings. Have you met him? Do you know him? Meeting him, knowing him, is the single greatest step any human being can make. A step that dwarfs every other step, however important it might seem or feel. And discover something else this morning. He is passionate about knowing you. He's passionate about knowing you. Follow with me. Flick back to verse 4 for a second. In fact, we'll need to read verse 3 to understand it. When the Lord learned of this, it's all about John the Baptist and stuff, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria. No, no, he certainly did not have to go through Samaria. In fact, everybody chose not to go through Samaria because the Jews hated the Samaritans. And because of this, if you were travelling from Judea down in the south up to Galilee in the north with Samaria in the middle, you would not go the quickest route through Samaria because the Jews hated Samaritans. You would go around the outside. That's what every self-respecting Jew did. It makes absolutely no sense to say he had to go through Samaria. He didn't. Nobody went through Samaria. It would have made much more sense if verse 4 said now he had to go around Samaria. And it's only when you get to the end of the chapter you understand the significance of that verse. You see, when we read it, we don't really get it. But if you were a Jew reading this for the first time and your inbuilt hatred towards Samaritans, the way you've been conditioned all your life was rising up in your heart, that verse would have leapt out of the praise. What did he mean he had to go through Samaria? I thought he was a prophet, a righteous, a holy man. Like every other self-respecting prophet, surely he would have gone round. But then when you get to the end of the story and you realize that this woman has taken the greatest step of her life in trusting Jesus and not only her but the whole village has come to Christ as well it's only then the verse makes sense he had to go through Samaria why? because God wanted to save this woman hallelujah and the whole of the village in for the bargain that's why he had to go because there were people there who were desperately dying of thirst who needed his drink. So first, it's a bit odd, really, this whole thing. But then there are lots of verses around here that are a bit odd. Look at verse 6. This is a bit odd as well. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. It tells us the time. How often does the Bible tell you the time? What time of day was Jairus' daughter healed? What time of day was the paralyzed man helped to walk? We don't know. It doesn't matter, because it doesn't tell us. We're not told. So why bother with the time here? Why? Because no self-respecting person would have been at the well at the sixth hour. It's the middle of the day. There's two reasons you'd never go to the well in the middle of the day. The first is because it was baking hot. And in the middle of the day, you'd be in the cool shade of your home. But more importantly, because it was the time when everyone was inside in the cool of the day, 
It was also the time when all the social undesirables would come out and make their way to the well. They wouldn't go any other time, but they went in the middle of the day because they knew then they wouldn't be troubled. They wouldn't be pushed away by the respectable classes. They wouldn't be made to feel even worse than they already feel about themselves. And so you read it, he's got to go through Samaria, the hated race, the utterly despised race, and now he's at the well. When's he at the well? In the middle of the day. Who is this Jesus? Is he bent on meeting all the wrong kinds of people? One can't help thinking he wanted to be there. However strange that must seem. The shock for the first-time readers would have been much greater than our own. And then would you Adam and Eve it? Out of the shadows, in the middle of the day, comes a woman. A woman. You have to understand that in that male-dominated culture, women were way down the list. The rabbis would pray in the synagogue, Blessed art thou uh, of God who has not made me a woman. Try praying that at the WI. (laughs) And then even more shocking... He chooses to speak to her. You just didn't speak in public to a woman. To transgress a huge cultural barrier was necessary to speak to a woman. Is this Jesus insane? It's all a bit odd, to say the least. Until you remember, he was determined to meet people. Utterly determined to meet people. From the hoi polloi of society like Nicodemus to the outsider at the bottom of the pile, it didn't matter who you were, where you were from, or what you'd done. And when Jesus said to her, hey, I know you've had five husbands and the man you're with now isn't even your husband, that's not a great moment for her, is it? You know, this is not the greatest day. This, this day has got to get a lot better, actually. The stranger, this foreign stranger says, hey, I know all about this stuff. Five men and the man now is not even... I mean, how would she have felt? No wonder she went back to the village and said, hey, the guy there told me everything. Told me everything about me. But it was for that woman who had so much we might think to hide. It was for that woman that Jesus had come that day. And to her eternal credit, she didn't run. I might have run at that point. Imagine someone exposing something about your inner moral life. Golly, what else does he know? I don't really want to hang around and find out. But to her eternal credit, she didn't run. And she said, hey, well, where can I get this water? Where can I drink this water that, as you, Jesus, have so eloquently put it, about my past history, where can I drink this water that I so obviously need? See, Jesus is passionately interested in meeting people. And to all who say God cannot be interested in me, look what I've done, look where I've been, look who I am. Your sense of unworthiness is the very condition that triggers God's concern. He comes for the improbable. He comes for the irreligious. He comes for the moral failure. He comes for you and for me with his life-giving water. That's the story of this Samaritan woman. Not only did he cross the divide of culture and race and gender, but he's crossed the divide from heaven to earth. He's crossed the divide from the eternal to the temporal. He's crossed the divide from divinity to humanity.
to bring to us, to you and to me, this life-giving drink. Malcolm Muggeridge, uh, preaching in Aberdeen some 40 years or so uh, ago now, said these words that have become quite uh, well attached with him. I may, I suppose, regard myself as a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough money to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the Internal Revenue Service. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heeded for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet, I say to you, and beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by millions, add them all up together and they are nothing, less than nothing, indeed a positive impediment measured against one drop of that living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. Have you drunk this water? Are you expecting another human being to do for you what no human being can? Don't do that to those you love most. It's too hard. They'll never achieve it. The pressure is too great. A burden too overwhelming. And if you're trying to be that person for another human being, I can only wish you well. The track record of humanity doesn't bode that positive. If you want relationships to work, the relationship has to work first. The greatest step you'll ever make is into this new life-changing relationship, out of which all other relationships have strength to flourish, out of which your thirst is quenched, your deepest need met, so you are resourced to respond to the needs of those around you. And so like this woman, we might say today, hey, give me, give me this water. Give me this water I, so that I won't get thirsty. How thirsty are you today? How needy deep inside are you? Where are you feeding from today. You will not find peace in your relationships with others until you've found peace within yourself. Give me this drink so that I may never thirst again.